Hello everyone and welcome to the Investing Experts Podcast. My name is James Ford and I am the Pragmatic Investor on Seeking Alpha. Today I'm joined by fellow essay contributor Cameron Fenn. Cameron is a doctorate student in economics and he specializes in machine learning and creating artificial intelligence models to support macroeconomic modeling. Now today we had a great conversation about artificial intelligence and its implications for businesses today, the outlook for NVIDIA, and also how this affects the general macro market outlook. Cameron, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. So I thought a good place to start would be on one of your most recent articles because you're pretty new to Seeking Alpha, but yep. on your last article, you got an editor's pick and the title is quite interesting. A data scientist explains large language models and implications for businesses. Yep, yep, yep. So I guess what I was trying to do with this article is essentially convey to a lay audience or an audience of investors uh, what this new sort of AI innovation they're getting into, right? So the idea mm-hmm. that these large language models, people are like, okay, I can like type anything and it can respond just like a human. I think that generated a lot of buzz. Uh, but in order to really understand the implications of the model, you have to understand how these models are built, uh, what the new innovations are, uh, and um, why these innovations, um, or what 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 does the technology constrain from the innovations, right? Because I think for most investors or lay people, this looks like magic, right? It's like it's a computer that basically talks to you like a human and knows a lot of interesting facts. Sometimes it says stuff that is wrong, just like a human, but it it's like you know. It's not like it doesn't feel like a machine. It feels like talking to a human. And so there's a lot of sort of buzz and uh, excitement over this. But if you don't know how the models are built, then you can extrapolate and you have people saying things like, you know, I I saw there was a Twitter video where it's like I used uh, a kernel using AI to use a drone to target an enemy. And Mm -hmm. when the drone realized that the pilot was getting in the way of, you know, the objective, the drone actually eliminated or in the simulation eliminated the Hmm. drone operator. Right. And this was found to be really like this was found to be, you know, not true. Uh, And if you don't understand how these tech works, you can get sucked into these sort of conspiracy theories like thing. We make an analogy to politics. Right. All right. So in your article, you also talk about the commercial implications for companies like uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft. So I just, I just love to, to understand a little bit. Uh, maybe if you can give everyone a background of, just explain what the large language models are, and yeah, what, what, what your thoughts are on this for how it applies to to these companies. Sure. So the, the sort of, uh, innovative sort of. Uh, technique that large language models use, and they're all transformer-based models, which is just a particular type of neural network. But the secret sauce is the attention mechanism. And essentially what attention does is it learns a weighted average of your inputs, right? And it gives an output that's a weighted average of the inputs. Uh, but if you train this on a large enough data and have a large, you know, you have like 20 or 30 different attention mechanisms in a single model or more, um, and each of these each of these single layers pays attention to a different sort of thing. Uh, but if you have enough of these models, it, what it will do is when you have a sentence like uh, Joan is 80 years old, uh, does uh, is she uh, and she is going to the doctors? Uh, is this you know? Uh, or actually, Joan is 80 years old. Her birthday is tomorrow. What year will she? What what age will she turn? 
right? And this attention model will, will pay attention to the things like 80, birthday, and it will sort of ignore all the other texts, right? And this is the secret sauce behind the transformer model, where it pays attention to stuff that's important, and then it will start generating words that says, like, Joan is going to be 81, because it's paid attention to these, these, these important parts of the topic and not had much attention to the things that aren't important, right? Uh, and implications for big tech. I believe that this will be a rich get richer thing. With the minor exception of a little bit of worry about Google search over the horizon, um, mm -hmm. because it seems like chat GPT, GPT-4 uh, is quite an improvement over GPT-3.5 and chat GPT. And I think right now that's the model that you're using to evaluate all other models. So that should tell you which one's in the lead, right? So if you have data scientists and they have all these open source models, the way they're evaluating is, is how well GPT-4 rates their output, right? Uh, and so this is like the dominant model. And of course, it's developed by OpenAI, which is basically like a Microsoft subsidiary at this point, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so the one thing I worry about is, you know, what it will happen to Google search? Will A, it lose some share? And it might, it might not, I don't know. Uh, but the other thing is, it's just more costly per search, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And you're probably going to have a mechanism where essentially what happens is um, someone types in a search query and they have a machine learning model that says, do I need to use a large language model or do I just do search like normal, right? But if a lot of queries end up wanting large language models, this will cut into Google's bottom line. Um, there's an article by Semi Analysis where essentially they calculated that you know each google search uh, has 0.5 cents of profit per search right and mm -hmm. these models cost somewhere between 0.1 and 0.3 cents before all these innovations that i talked about earlier or uh, that i talked about in my article uh hopefully that will bring that down but as of 2022 these the cost of per search uh, if you use a large engine model is 0.1 to 0.3 cents and that eats into google's sort of margin, right? Now, if you don't use a large language model when someone does a search query, then that doesn't matter. But if you do, then profitability is weaker. Uh, other than that, though, I think uh, uh, big tech will benefit. And the reason they'll benefit is they have more data. Um, they have, you know, they have a lot of people that can build these models, but I don't think that's the biggest deal. And in the data science world, I think the main moat is data. It's not the model, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There are thousands of data scientists that can build large language models that compete with Google. The problem that they don't have is they don't have enough GPUs and they don't have the data that Google has or Microsoft has or OpenAI has or Facebook has or Amazon has, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Like just Amazon, it has, you know, more transaction data than anyone else in the world. Uh, Facebook has more social and even with their sort of like Facebook advertising has, you know, preferences of people and Again, what people click and stuff like that. Same with Google and Google has search. Uh, and so, and then all of them have internal code, right? So one of the big advantages, uh, one of the big uses of large language models is essentially that you can build, you can fine tune these models to help coders, you know, write code. Mm -hmm. And I pay $10 for GitHub Copilot. There are probably millions of people or tens of millions of people that pay, will pay $10 a month for GitHub Copilot. Uh, and so this is a huge business, right? And essentially, if he, if this gets better, you know, this could, you know, be a profit machine to maybe a smaller company like OpenAI. It probably wouldn't.
be much of a drop in the bucket for other companies um, like the big tech. But they have mm-hmm. massive amounts of data, and maybe they can do something even better than Google or uh, OpenAI Copilot that will uh, 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 give them uh, be more profitable, generate more revenue than something like you know whatever ten dollars a month. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I think they have the uh, walled gardens, and they have more data than anyone else, and so I think uh, large language models will predominantly benefit them. It's interesting because I was talking about this uh, with another essay contributor on the podcast, and he mentioned that to actually run something like ChatGPT at scale, like at the scale of Google search, would be at this point economically unviable just due to the expense of those of that hardware and those GPUs that are used. Um, I guess I would disagree. I think it's possible. Um, I did the analysis in... Uh... In my NVIDIA article, and it's actually not that large. I had another article where I talked about NVIDIA and sort of a short report on NVIDIA uh, saying mm-hmm. the amount of GPUs that is required to uh, justify the market cap is beyond what is necessary. But essentially, no, I don't. So right now, uh, OpenAI has 30,000 GPUs for about 200 million queries a day. Google search, if I, these are numbers that I'm approximating, had 26 billion queries a day. So that's another, what, uh, order of 10, 10x, right? Mm-hmm. 100x? Yeah, 100x, right? Right. And so, yeah, and so, you know, 30,000 30, to, um, wait, okay, so wait, let me see. Yes, so Google search, I think Google search was 2 billion a day. I'm not sure. Uh, but it's essentially 10x, right? And 10x number of GPUs is not unreasonable. You have 30,000 right now with OpenAI, and OpenAI will get 300,000. If, if, for instance, they are the only large language model and they do as much large language modeling as there is Google search. So mm-hmm. it's only you only need 10x more GPUs. Uh, and even with that, um, there are innovations over the past three months since 2023 has started. Uh, quantization, there's there's a new technique called QLORA, which is a combination of quantizations and uh, an adapter, which is just, you know, these are just large language models. This is a particular sort of techniques that you use to make these models more effective. Uh, there's QLORA, there's uh, a model distillation, which has been a thing for a long time, but essentially what model distillation is, is um, you get a big model and it teaches a small model by giving the small model the small model a lot of examples, right? Mm-hmm. And then quantization is obviously instead of using 32-bit float, you use like 4-bit float or something like that. So your numbers are less accurate. But both of these techniques have shown that they produce models just as accurate as the models without quantization. Without, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, adapters is another thing in itself, and I don't want to explain that. Uh, but without quantization, without distillation. Now, if you combine these things, you can essentially run a, I think, a 64 billion large language model on a single GPU. You know, mm-hmm. OpenAI uses probably five, six or eight GPUs per large language model per uh, uh, and per query or whatever. And so if you cut down from eight to like four or eight to two, then, then the 10x is going to be something like 2x or 3x. And so it's very doable with the new new innovations. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm sorry if I'm like not make, being clear. No, no, it makes perfect sense. I just wanted, to, could you repeat the numbers then? So the search is done on ChatGPT versus Google search? 
Yeah, so against essentially Google queries, I think two billion searches a day, right? Right. Right. Right now, OpenAI is querying uh, uh, an estimated 200,000 large language model searches a day, right? Right. Okay. So that would be... It's a 10x. Let me... Let me uh, I can no, pull up two, my no, article. 200,000 would be... Two, 10x would be 200 2 million. million. 200, no, right. it's 200... Okay. Mi- OpenAI is querying 200 million. Okay. Uh, All right. Or at least we, we, it can handle 200 million a day. Okay. All right. Okay, that, that, that makes a bit more sense. Um, it's very interesting because you touched on my next question because I was also going to ask you about NVIDIA. Uh, obviously, you have that article out which has a sell rating or what you might even say shorting. Now, in my other conversation with a fellow SA contributor, Trading Places Research, he was, he also, I mean, he believes the valuation on NVIDIA is very high, but he does believe in the growth story was the way he put it. Uh, he seems to believe. I'll give you his view, and then you can uh, you can rebut it and tell me what your thoughts are. He basically believes Nvidia is in a in a class of its own that there is no competition right now for for its GPUs or at least for that combination of GPUs and software. And he was talking about um, a little bit about what you're mentioning as well. The competitors, for example, Google, who is now coming out with uh, what they're calling AI accelerators or TPUs. And obviously, right. that is how these companies are competing with NVIDIA. But so far, uh, there is no, in, in his view, there is no real competition competition to NVIDIA. Is that how you see things? Or you probably see things a little bit differently? Actually, yeah, I, I pretty much... Uh, so, I think in the medium term, there will be competition. But I generally see things this way. I see... I don't see many competitions in the short run. I mean, basically, NVIDIA's gross profits are like 60% of revenue, right? So 40% gross cost, uh, 60% gross profit, right? So like, obviously people are looking at this company and are very interested in trying to take some of their business because it's hugely profitable. I've, other than Apple, I've never heard of a hardware company with such high gross profits. Uh, and so what this suggests is people are going to try to take NVIDIA's share, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the near term... I don't think, and I would agree with uh, the other person, that there aren't any competitors to NVIDIA, uh, mm-hmm. near term, near term. Uh, NVIDIA with CUDA basically dominates AI, uh, and the problem is CUDA. CUDA is basically a language that allows you to pro- uh, tell uh, GPUs what to do, uh, and is very useful in deep learning, and AMD doesn't have an alternative. There mm-hmm. are people, uh, George Hotz was one who tried to, uh, uh, who tried to write a CUDA-like uh, language for AMD, but he has since quit. I don't know why he spent like two weeks on it. But like, I'm talking to the tech people on Twitter, right? And they are saying essentially the probably the most value add AMD engineers can do right now is to write a CUDA like language for AMD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am in agreement that until AMD uh, writes something like that, and until Google and Facebook, you know sell their their tpus or their specialized machine learning computational units nvidia is the only company that is uh you know is the only uh, game in town mm-hmm. now that being said um my difference with uh, uh the other author is even if nvidia captures 100 percent of the market it's not going to be big enough to justify the market cap so that's where i differ from uh okay that's that's author. very that's very interesting now, in terms of the competition, you mentioned AMD. 
um, Google as well. Who do you think is best positioned? Like who is actually, because I've heard good things about what Google is doing with TPUs. Um, what do you think about the, the other companies? Who's going to challenge NVIDIA for the throne, in your opinion? Oh, I don't know. I mean, so there's one thing where Google is only offering their TPUs in the cloud because they want it as a competitive advantage. So in a sense, Google's not really challenging NVIDIA in the space of selling, you know, GPUs, essentially, or computational units, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because they're only using their stuff in the cloud. Maybe, the, I, I think their TPUs are better than uh, NVIDIA's GPUs for uh, large language modeling, uh, mostly because NVIDIA still has to, I think NVIDIA's also selling specialized GPUs, but their GPUs also have to actually handle graphics, right? Because, like, people are still using them for playing video games and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I imagine the TPUs are more specialized, and I'm sure they've updated it over the years. Uh, but I just, I think a lot of people, well, I don't know if I want to say this, but again, you can only do that if you're using Google in the cloud, right? If you're going to buy a GPU on your own computer, I think NVIDIA is, again, the only game in town. Uh, I think... Of the other players, probably Google is the best position, but again, they're not selling GPUs, right? Mm -hmm. Or TPUs. So I, I, I would again say that like no one's in a great position. If AMD develop, so I will say one thing. If AMD develops a, a CUDA-like language, they will be in the best position. And they are in pretty good position in, in uh, machine learning inference. So, like, you can train mm -hmm. your machine learning models, and then inference essentially someone types in a command like, you know, uh, Explain World War II like I'm five years old and the GPU or the, a large language model would do something like that. That's inference, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so with inference, it is much easier to use AMD GPUs uh, because you don't need to use, uh, there's not so much CUDA-like interface that you need in training because training is much more complex than just inference, right? So mm -hmm. in that aspect, AMD is already gaining share. Uh, and I think I, I read in one of the comments that something like newly built, you know, servers uh, basically have, you know, there's a large share of AMD, like higher than, you know, 10 or 20% that you would expect by uh, AMD's regular market share. These hyperscalers are actually buying more AMDs than they used to. Uh, and probably that's because of inference. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't need a NVIDIA GPU to do inference. You don't need CUDA, that much CUDA to do inference. And so... It's easy enough to do it with AMD, which uh, has basically GPUs that are cheaper per flop, essentially. It's interesting because you talk about NVIDIA as having a dominant market position, but obviously you probably think the valuation has gone too far at this point based on that analysis of the market uh, share. Is there a price at which you would consider buying NVIDIA? Is that something that you're, you're waiting for? Yeah, I mean... So I, I talked about this before. This is sort of like I was hesitant to say sell because it really wasn't an article about NVIDIA's valuation or NVIDIA's financial analysis. It was really an article on the angle of this is what how much large language models will demand GPUs uh, for from NVIDIA. And this is why that's false. Right. And there are a lot of other aspects of the company. Like I didn't touch upon valuation. I didn't touch upon their Internet of Things and their, like, other aspects. I did not touch upon, like, how they have a cost advantage in GPUs, right? Because I, I don't know semiconductors. I don't really pay attention to, like, their mm -hmm. other uh, aspects. Uh, I don't really spend a lot of time understanding data centers or hyper uh, mm -hmm. hyperscalers. Uh, and so my main angle was coming from this is, you know, 
this is a machine learning person's take on what the demand for large language models would be. So, I don't really have a valuation on buying NVIDIA. Um, right now, it's too expensive based on mm -hmm. just this demand. But again, I was, I hope I was clear in my article and basically saying, you know, this is not like a fully fleshed uh, uh, stock pitch. This is really talking about one particular angle, right? And mm -hmm. if you have a thesis that takes into account other stuff, I'm not saying you're wrong and maybe it is a buy. I doubt it, but I didn't do a full, you know, holistic view of the company, right? Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I wanted to know a little bit more about your own background. Uh, I'm reading your profile here. It says you're a PhD economist by trade who specializes in using machine learning to improve macroeconomic models. So please go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so actually I'm uh, still a PhD student. It's not quite clear on that. But yes, so the re I use machine learning models to build, or I machine learning algorithms to build macroeconomic models. And the machine learning models I use are the same, I mean, I don't really use large language models in my uh, work. I trained some transformers in the past, but um, you know I don't really spend that much time with them. But uh, the main thing I spend is I do uh, Bayesian machine learning on essentially uh, macroeconomic models. So these are models that sort of predict the implications <coughs> of the economy. I have I will have a new article on Seeking Alpha at some point mm -hmm. discussing uh, uh, Schrodinger, which is a company that uses sort of MCMC, so Bayesian techniques to mm -hmm. do uh, molecular uh, designing molecules and ligands for, for you know, diseases. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I'm happy to be able to use my Bayesian, uh, ex you know, Bayesian experience to talk about that company. Um, but that's, <laughs> you know, the main thing I do, like, you know, uh, you know, predicting inflation, you know, mm -hmm. if people have seen the GDP now kind of models, those are the kind of models I use, you know, building these structural models that can predict inflation or what happens if the Federal Reserve drops interest rates by 2% or whatever, what will the impact on the economy be? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's very interesting. So basically, if I'm understanding it correctly, you would take different macroeconomic indicators and put them into this uh, artificial intelligence machine learning model to kind of forecast what your, what your view is of the, of the macroeconomy in the future. Yeah. I mean, economists, uh... I don't want to say they're a little bit behind on the curve, but they're doing, they do things differently than a machine learning person, right? So mm -hmm. you're really capturing what a machine learning person would do. You get some data, you put it in some black box model, doesn't matter how it works, and it cranks out, you know, an output, right? With economists, what we like to do is we like to build like really structural models. So we'll have like, you know, this is what happens to uh, capital depreciation, right? So every, at every period, capital depreciates by a little bit. And then the, the capital that you have remaining goes into a production function, which determines how much, you know, goods you produce. And then the people that you have buy these goods, uh, uh, but they also have to balance, like, how much they spend now versus saving for the future. Uh, and so in a machine learning approach, you just put in all these indicators into a model. These the, None of the parameters make any sense. They're just like random parameters, like linear regression parameters, but more complicated. Mm -hmm. And then they output a uh, output, right? But with economics, we build all these models. So all these parameters have sort of real world analogs. And the hope is essentially that because they have real world analogs, you can understand economic dynamics more effectively. And you can also do things like counterfactual analysis, right? So mm -hmm. you cannot say like if inflation went down by two percent, what would uh, what would uh, 
in this black box model, you said you can't say if inflation went down by 2%, what would the output be? Uh, you can only say uh, if inflation went down by 2% in the data, uh, what, ha uh, you know, other things that are correlated with going down by 2%, what is it? What, what does uh, a decrease in 2% changes correlations, right? And there's a difference between causation and correlation. With the mm -hmm. structural model, essentially, I can make uh, inflation go down by 2%. And this is a counterfactual environment. If I use a black box model and inflation goes down by 2%, this is a correlative model, right? So it's what, what in the real data is correlated with going down by 2%. Whereas in my structural model, we don't even need real data. We can use the model to sort of essentially uh, write a counterfactual even without, you know, being disciplined by the data. It doesn't work as well as I'm making it sound, but uh, that's what the attempt is. Okay, well, that's that's very interesting. So what would your model, what is your model telling you now? Is that something that you're, you're looking at what, now? What, what, what is it telling you about inflation going forward, for example? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That, that's the funny thing, because I actually don't build these models. I actually build the math, you know, I do the mm -hmm. algorithmic, you know, data crunching behind it, right? So I say, okay. like, this is how you should build your models. And then economists right. take the models that I build, and they say, okay, we're going to forecast inflation and stuff. So... I don't, I mean, I know more economics than the average person on the street, but I would say I don't know, like, I don't spend my time, you know, really doing economics. I'm really, like, improving these models, right? So I spend time looking at the model and saying, this is one thing you can improve upon it. So when you look at investing, okay. are you just looking at particular companies then? Or, I mean, do you use macro at all? Do you have a particular view of what the Fed is going to do, what, how recession is going to affect us? That's, so the macro isn't real. Even though you build these models, the macro isn't something you focus on so much. Nah, it's actually kind of funny. As an economist, I understand how bad macroeconomic forecasting is. So <laughs> right. um, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't do it. You know, if a company is, I guess what I do is I like quality companies at a, you know, a reasonable or cheap price, right? And if I'm going to buy and hold for 10 years, which I don't actually do, but I'd like to do, um, mm -hmm. you know, I would like to buy quality companies uh, regardless of essentially the price or the economic condition. I will say, though, I spend a lot of time investing in foreign countries, and then I do actually take into account things like exchange rate risk, inflation, and stuff like that, simply because, you know, in, in a developed country, you just take these things for granted. Um, but if your country is returning 20% a year uh, in, in lira or whatever, you got to look at, like, what the inflation rate is. Uh, it's been great having you, Cameron. Before we log off, uh, please tell everyone where they can find you on the internet and what you're doing on Seeking Alpha. Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Seeking Alpha. I Cameron Fenn. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Cameron Fenn One, uh, and then I have a LinkedIn. You can just search Cameron Fenn and uh, a GitHub if you're interested in my academic work. CameronFenn.github.io. Uh, and so, yeah, that's uh, looking forward to uh, interacting with people. Thank you right. very much, James. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on, for coming on, Cameron. It's been great talking about this stuff. And, you know, I hope we can do it again sometime. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe to the Investing Expert podcast. Go ahead and check out the Pragmatic Investor profile on Seeking Alpha. And just to wrap up, remember, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. At times, myself or the guests might own positions in the securities mentioned. You can find transcripts for all our episodes on the Investing Experts author page on Seeking Alpha, and links to the investing groups can be found there or in our podcast show notes under episode descriptions.